Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. And today we're welcoming Kevin Grogan to the show. Kevin is a U.S. Army veteran, a homicide detective, a former homicide detective, part of the Savannah Chatham Police Rapid Response Team Expo. And he's also the author of Black Sheep, White Cop, Savannah Exposed. Uh, Kevin, great to have you on here. Hey, man. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, kind of how I got to your uh, background and your book and stuff, I've had Lou Velozzi on the show a couple times, and I've had Jay Dobbins on there. And when you, especially when you start reading those books, the recommendations, whether it's Amazon or Barnes & Noble, they will start saying, hey, read this book or whatever it is. And uh, this led me to your book, and I read it a couple weeks ago. And uh, just just awesome. I, I, I want to talk about that for sure. Uh, but before we get started, how have you been? How's life treating you? How's the... Uh, everything going on in the world right now how's that kind of affecting your psyche out there yeah i mean you know i'm blessed i mean and, and i tried to shy away from that word but you know given everything i've been through in my life this chapter of my life has been a whole bunch of fun you know uh getting married uh i'm writing another book you know it, uh you're just talking about lou velozzi his book was just released and it's killing it uh oh, yeah. it's a number one new release on amazon so you know, seeing good things happen to good people, it, it doesn't get much better than that. You know, my son, uh, my son just uh, made it into the 75th Ranger Regiment. So, you know, awesome. huge accomplishment there. So now all I'm going to do is kick back and uh, kind of live vicariously through him and then just enjoy his successes. And, you know, I'm having a great time. The interesting thing about people like yourself and Lou or Jay Dobbins or Steve Murphy, Javier Pena, people have lived these lives that are very i used to be former law enforcement but i never got to do this part of the law enforcement you guys did whether it's the rapid response team stuff or undercover work and i find that people are super interested in, these are real life people that yes they, they're great at what they do but they also have their faults and they're it's something where only way to properly showcase this stuff is either through a book or a documentary with the people involved and i think with Black Sheep, White Cop, you've done that. You've portrayed this this time in Savannah in 20, 2006 where there's different issues going on and you there's just something very specific about this. You don't have to be from Georgia or Savannah or USA to appreciate this type of book because this type of thing happening in Savannah at the time is happening in other places around the world too. And I think there's something really powerful to that. No, it's one of those things, man. You, you can only talk about what you know and I know Savannah, you know. And when you talk about guys like Javier Pena and Steve Murphy and Jay Dobbins and Lou Velozzi, those guys, uh, I mean, on top of being uh, incredible professionals and, you know, top performers in their line of work, they're also great human beings. So, you know, anytime you have dynamic individuals like that and you get to know them, you know, it, it, I mean, it's just like anybody in life. You, you meet dynamic people you get better and, and your life improves just knowing people like that. No, for sure. One of the interesting things about you, the, and I know a lot of people that used to be in the military before that jumped into law enforcement, but what was the reasoning for you? Was it the action, the, the serving of others still? Like, how did you kind of do that transition from military life to law enforcement life? Well, I, I'll tell you what, I, I took a very unusual path. Um, it was kind of foreshadowed, but 
I got out of college. I went to Westfield State College in Westfield, Massachusetts. Um, oh, yeah. Graduated. And then I went to go work uh, for the police department in my hometown uh, of Windsor, Connecticut. So, you know, small town. I got out. I have a degree. I don't know about anything. I hadn't been out of New England, hadn't been anywhere in the world. And I'm the youngest of five kids. So my dad was a little league coach. My mother was a high school teacher all in the same hometown. So <laughs> before I even hit the street in Windsor, you know, everybody's getting stopped by the police and they're like, oh, I know Grogan. I know Grogan. And I'm, you know, I'm not even a rookie yet. I'm in the academy. And so the older veteran guys are like, we don't give a shit who, you know, you know, who's, who's this kid that I asked. So my world was very, very small. Uh, so that transition wasn't a lot of fun for me, even though I always knew I wanted to be in law enforcement. Uh, I wasn't ready at that point. And then, you know, uh, the best thing for me to go see the world was join the army. You get training, you get experience, you get all these things. And even though I already had a degree, uh, I enlisted because I wanted to do very specific things, which I was able to do. Um, did five years in the army, got an all expense paid trip to, uh, places like, Kosovo, Bosnia, and uh, Baghdad. Got to see those. Uh, that was a life, you know, life-changing event, as you can imagine. Uh, but I always knew what I wanted to do. Um, I loved the Army. I still love the Army to this day. Um, but I knew I needed to transition back to law enforcement. So uh, when I was at Fort Stewart, which is in Hinesville, Georgia, you know, my ex-wife was from Savannah. And, man, I was in Savannah for three hours. And knew I'm never going to leave. I mean, this city is beautiful. Uh, a, a Yankee like me came down. You know, the old joke is, you know, the difference between a Yankee and a damn Yankee. A Yankee comes from the north and comes to visit. A damn Yankee comes down and stays. So I'm a damn Yankee down here. But this this city is beautiful. And then, uh, you know, as you can tell from the book, it's a hell of a place to police. You know, really, really interesting place that uh, I call it the Boston of the South very historical, very traditional, but it's very, very alive. Yeah. The food, the music, the art, it, it is really awesome down there for obviously when you say you've been in Baghdad, Iraq and all these places, the, the, the level of violence and war you've been around as that transitions into the life of a homicide detective where violence and stuff is abound. Was there any ever times for when there was something that happened as a cop where the violence and stuff like does it ever bring up flashbacks like ptsd type episodes where it's you see a body or violence and stuff like that yeah you know flashbacks no uh you know i i kind of have uh some different thoughts on that type of thing um the the stress from uh the experiences of combat uh the stress from the experiences of being on the street and seeing just you know what you see is and it's sort of cliche, but man's uh, inhumanity to man, you, you see so much of it in, in those roles. And you see that some people, you know, put a lot of emphasis on the homicide detective stuff, but you see it as a patrolman. You know, I, I worked in a housing project. It's called Hitch Village in Savannah, and it was an extremely violent place. You know, all, all the conflicts in that housing project were solved with firearms. And, you know, you see that level of violence uh, on a daily basis. It it definitely eats at you. Um, but flashing back, no, um, you know, any of those things that I've ever had, like dreams I've had. And, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the last, uh, couple of years advocating for mental health for 
soldiers and police officers and that kind of stuff trying to shake the stigma you know and you had uh bird and lou on here talking about a lot of those uh mental health stigmas and trying to shake them off you you have to uh, we have to shake the old school thought of you know rub some dirt on it drink some water it, it'll be okay you know those are long lasting effects and uh, you know there's a line there in black sheep white cop where i talk about uh killing another person it's it's an unnatural act you know and once it happens your life is irrevocably changed. You know, it doesn't, you can't go back to being who you were before. So, right. you know, the, the long lasting effects of that, uh, of witnessing all of that, you know, it hits you on a lot of different levels. For those that haven't read your book yet, could you just kind of give like a brief synopsis of the Expo uh, Crowd Suppression Unit and what that job entailed? For well, us? I, I tell you what, it, the funny thing about that book, all right, so I, I got, in trouble. You know, I got, I got in big trouble. I got a DUI, um, got wound up. My DUI happened at a time where, you know, 2014, you got Ferguson, Missouri happening in the country's, uh, the light is on Ferguson. It's on, uh, Baltimore, Maryland. It's on New York city with Eric Garner. Uh, so the big thing was police corruption, police corruption, police corruption. So our chief was in trouble. Uh, two detectives were in trouble and, and a sergeant were in trouble uh, for all of these things. The chief wound up going to federal prison for, prison for racketeering charges. Uh, one of the detectives pled to some theft. Uh, another one uh, was indicted and actually put in prison for uh, some administrative stuff. And then the sergeant was being investigated for allegedly tipping off drug dealers. But the whole thing was, the whole accusation was this was a corrupt organization uh, that was giving information to bad guys and protecting bad guys and drug dealers. And, and, you know, I never saw that to be the case at all. But again, because politics were so popular then, that was so much the agenda that was being pushed that these lives were, you know, very much affected by it. So I wind up getting a DUI in that time frame. And what happened in court was the sergeant's, uh, the sergeant's uh, case wound up going to court and his defense attorney filed a selective prosecution motion, basically saying, you're only charging black officers and you're charging them with things that you'd never charge a civilian, which was 100% true. All right, well, the day they they went and grabbed my DUI and it became a big, uh, it became a big thing. So for two years, seven months and 13 days, not that I counted, uh, I was sitting on the shelf and I didn't have a lot to do. So, you know, my buddy Lou was talking about writing a book and, you know, I introduced him to a guy that was running for a mayor that was an internationally best-selling author. And he's like, man, you should write your stuff down too. So I did. So the book for me was very cathartic. I was going to give 50 of them away and that was it. You know, I was going to write about my buddies and bitch and moan about, you know, what happened to me and blue, blue, blue. But as I wrote it, it was very, very, uh, like I said, very cathartic. It was, it was a lot of therapy for me. I couldn't, you know, I'm not a sit down and talk to you about how I feel and all, you know, that kind of stuff kind of guy. Uh, but writing it down was extremely um, beneficial to me. So I say all that to, to get to the expo part is one of the coolest parts of my career ever was this crime suppression unit. Uh, violent crime was really, really uh, ramping up in uh, Savannah, a lot of drugs, a lot of guns, 
you couldn't say gangs back then, but we had a lot of gangs too. Right. Um, so as a response, uh, you know, the opening line of the book is if there's one thing Savannah, Georgia hates, it's a dead white girl. It's a 19 year old college student. Uh, she was a debutante from an affluent family uh, is leaving a ball and heading to her boyfriend's house. They walk through one of our beautiful squares and they get robbed. Well, she committed the ultimate sin in a robbery is she bucked the jack you know she wouldn't give up her purse so they shot her and and very cowardly uh you know killed her and that really sparked an outrage in savannah uh so they formed this unit uh the new chief who uh, had just been named interim chief put together this team and it was basically designed to go we didn't have we didn't answer calls for service we went to find the bad guys and address the issues. Guys hanging out on corners, dealing drugs with guns, anybody we knew that were uh, trigger pullers in the city, we, we went after them and you know it, it, had a, it had a very powerful effect on the way policing was done. But again, that's 2006. You know, that type of policing doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. And one of the interesting things, like the, one of the themes of your book, the idea of Yes, there could be cops and people in that position that can be like kissing babies, right? You always talk about kissing babies, but you also need those people, men and women who work in the gray area that are, they have the same job, but they have to toe the line between the, the light and the dark in terms of what they can legally do and what, what the benefit of doing something is, whether it's not arresting that guy that's got a little ounce of weed in there, which you talk about and, but not arresting him because you know, the bigger fish is where's he getting this weed? Where's he buying it from this type of stuff. And the people that don't understand that. And I, I think this goes into your whole idea of when people, when you bring in politics into this, they don't understand the, the goal of this. This isn't to turn cops into aggressors and assholes and just target and just, all this type of stuff. It's to help get rid of the crime rate, which what was the drop? 16% over the course of that year. It's 15 like 15.2%. I, I and think. So, right. But I, I tell you, the thing is, uh, you, you said a lot there. And one of the biggest thing is, is the American police officer. I think if you look at the entire uh, criminal justice system, the American police officer, and I'm, I'm talking patrolmen, guys who are just out of the academy, just get started. They have more authority than any other position in the entire system because you have this discretion of whether to start the ball rolling on uh, criminal histories and to make a charge or uh, I won't say ignoring it, but using your discretion and saying, hey, what's the best way to handle this? Because there, you know, there are so many times in situations where I had probable cause to make uh, felony arrests, but making an arrest was not the, the best way to handle the situation. You know, but now we live in a world of such li high liability that if you go, everybody will go back now and second guess what you could have done, should have done, would have done, and actually what you did. And then, you know, you put use of force into situations like that, and now it's magnified to a point where I feel like law enforcement's uh, basically crippled. You know, these guys, YouTube, if YouTube were around when I was a cop, uh, and I'm ashamed of nothing, absolutely nothing that I did professionally. You know, I, I'm proud of the decisions I made, the cases I made, and that. But 
uh, you don't want to, I wouldn't want anybody putting it on video because, you know, I wouldn't want to have to explain it because it's hard to explain things to people who have no earthly idea of what's really going on. And we live in that day and age, especially with the media, where there's always a rush to be first, not correct. And they'll show pieces of something or especially the last two years. And obviously the travesty of the George Floyd stuff, but that led into the events in Atlanta, these other situations where uh, use of force policy from taser to handgun, all this stuff was happening. And you had all these people watching the news or commenting on YouTube, like you said, they have no basis of the training these officers go through, what the use of force continuum is and all this stuff. And I, could you... If you were if you were getting out of the art military now, is yourself Kevin? Could you imagine working in the law enforcement today with what's ever going on in the world? No, absolutely not. Um, I think I wrote it in that book. I wrote it. I wrote it a couple of days ago in this new book that I'm writing. Uh, I have so much respect for the men and women today that are actually signing up to go oh. uh, get these positions because they see the scrutiny that they're walking into. And they can't be doing it blindly. So if they have the balls to to step up today, raise their, their right hand and get behind a badge and go out and try and do that job, you know, the courage that they display just by taking the position uh, is it's pretty incredible to me. Like, you know, now I'm old, I'm old and crotchety now, so I don't want the headache, you know, and, and I used to be a, a cape wearing do-gooder, you know, I, I was all about that, but now yeah, if I knew then what I know now, I, I would have gotten into uh, finance or something like that. You know, and it, it's disheartening too because you have these career law enforcement men and women that are, want to retire early because they don't want to deal with the bullshit in New York City and or all this stuff going on. It's like, at what point do all these law enforcement agencies, whether it's the bigger groups like the FOP, Fraternal Order of Police, or groups like that, they're like, hey, enough is enough. What can we do to make this? fight the truth or fight these these this negative the negativity that's out there with the media about law enforcement and how do we help recruit men and women to do a job that is sorely needed it should not be defunded like how, wh what are your thoughts on that you know what one of the best uh conversations i've ever had on that so lou velozzi and i do a podcast called end of watch with boots yes and one of our guests is america's sheriff uh david clark from milwaukee county and he, he said it best when he said, you know, cops are their own worst enemies when it comes to public relations. We don't do public relations. Now, the, the other side, the anti-cop, shake your fist, your Black Lives Matter, your defund the police or whoever, they are phenomenal with their approach to yeah. public relations. And they get out in the media, they, are, they get this exposure and they go and they just trash cops. And police departments do not, do not respond. They just go and you get on, you know, social media and you show a cop in the front yard throwing a baseball or or playing in the street, uh, some basketball with some kids. And maybe they do like coffee with cops or something like that. But they don't fight the, the narrative. They don't say, look, we're out here keeping these streets safe. They don't show the arrests where, you know, officers chase the millions and millions and millions of, of police encounters that don't end in deaths. Uh, that don't end in people getting hurt, the positive uh, work that gets done out there. And it's ugly. I mean, having to put your hands on any another human being, it never ends well. You're not going to video it and have it look okay. It's always going to look bad, but it is so necessary to keep a society safe because 
you know, the one thing that people do not want to admit is there are people in this world that will never play by the rules and, and they need to be dealt with. It's just like you go to a classroom, a kindergarten classroom. There's always that one little Johnny who's going to get up from his desk. And no matter how nicely you ask him, no matter how many times you redirect him to sit down back in his chair and be quiet and stop disrupting the class, he's always going to get up and do it. One of the cool things, again, about this book, uh, Black Sheep, White Cop, the two relationships you really talk about is Police Chief Willie Lovett, who was the one convicted, and your friendship with Greg Capers. It was almost like the, the yin and yang of that to the relationship you had with the district attorney, Meg Heap, where you talk all this good stuff happening, yet you're trying to do this part, but then you have these other people, and you talked about this before, with the politics involved in policing and people saying what, doing what they feel is the right thing to do at the time versus, so when you have someone like Meg, who is like this overarching, I'm not going to call her a villain per se, maybe I will, uh, you have someone like this in I that will. role. So you have someone in this role, how, like, you still have to go to work every day doing your job. And you know, in the back of your mind, this person doesn't have your back or is out to get you. Well, the worst part about it is I didn't know. I had no idea that I, that I was going to have the types of issues I had with the district attorney's office that I did. Because I, you know, I made some big cases in this city. You know, I, I had uh, I had a lot going on. And it was always a pleasure working with the assistant district attorneys. You know, they took cases that I made and, and got them prosecuted and, you know, did a really, really good job. The funny part about that is after the whole story, you know, and I write this book. So I flat out called our district attorney, who's no longer our district attorney, thankfully. Uh, I just flat out called her a racist. I called uh, some of her minions who were her assistants liars. Uh, I took some shots at the judge, uh, and we can get back to that. He's actually judging the Ahmad Arbery uh, oh, wow. case. Uh, Tim Wamsley, who's a, I'll reserve uh, comment yep. somewhat, but you know, people that at one point were on my side, and and I looked up to them. Now that I've seen their true colors, is uh, despicable. I mean, absolutely despicable uh, examples of what's wrong with the criminal justice system, and then. The flip side of that, you know, so before I released the book, I sat down with attorneys to make sure defamation and, and slander or libel uh, claims. I wanted to make sure that I was ahead of those. I had all my paperwork and documentation that I could show. You know, I said this, here's why, here's the documentation, because the defense for all those things is truth. Uh, I didn't get any blowback from calling the district attorney racist. I didn't get any blowback from calling uh, the judge uh, weak and, and lacking honor. I didn't get any blowback from calling the assistant district attorney a liar at, at all because it was all true. So nobody's going to say anything about that. What I got shit for was I didn't call Willie Lovett a crook, which I don't believe him to be. And I told people that Greg Capers was my friend and Greg Capers is very much my friend and, and still one of my best friends in the world. But that was the shit because, you know, we're in, a, we're in Southeast Georgia. You know, it's not, you know, people say, well, racism still exists. Well, no shit. All right. It absolutely does. Uh, but these guys, they were phenomenal to me in, in my career. They gave me all the opportunities to, to succeed. Uh, and they happen to be black. It makes no difference to me. I don't, I don't give a shit what color they are. They're, they're 
uh, guys that one are my friends and two that I look up to. So, you know, it's one of those things where it, it was a crazy storm of, uh, if you had told me five years before it happened that this situation would pop up, I'd have laughed. I, I'd have been like, hey, no way. It, you know, but, you know, it's the type of stuff that movies are made out of. How prepared were you for the blowback for standing up for your friends? Because like, for me, it's like one of those things where if they're your friend, they're your family, like it, you stand up for that person no matter what. If they make a mistake, you support them and get the help they need and do help them. But in your case, since it was so politicized, you stood up by your friend, especially Greg, who was who was just villainized and just all the stuff said about him, all done to him, his career, and you stood by him. How important was that for him to know you you were in his corner? No, I I don't know. I, I couldn't answer for him, but I can tell you, uh, that's just I've been that way most of my life, you know, especially my post army career, uh, and he did the same for me, you know, when I was down. But that's that's why Lou Velozzi and I are so tight. We were both in a shitstorm at the same time, and you know you don't talk, you know you don't talk shit about Lou to me. You don't talk shit about Greg to me, and just and vice versa. You don't talk about me to them because they they will flat out go. They know I'm not perfect, and I know they're not perfect. Uh, but you know if you're not in our little world, I'm not going to let you have that. And and they wouldn't do it with me, but. You know, that kind of support when you're going through, uh, you know, life-changing events is, it's essential. It, it's how you wake up in the morning. It's how you keep your feet moving. I'm thankful that those guys were my friends then. Uh, I'm even more thankful that they're my friends now, uh, you know, but it's always to me that whole, the thin blue line, that brotherhood, that is not at all, as you uh, probably know, uh, is not at all what it's like in real life. The days of Serpico, uh, like we'll stand up for each other, even when we're stealing and robbing. And those are long gone, man. Cops love to eat, uh, eat their own. Uh, and uh, I can tell you, you know, I had enough of a reputation in the department where there were a lot of people waiting to see me fall. So when I did, they had a good time with it. But the guys that I respect, the guys that uh, I worked with that know me, you know, they weren't happy about it at all. And they stood by me and, you know, that's the reason I'm still standing today is because of guys like that. You talk about the imperfections. I think that's the thing that makes these guests like yourself or Lou or Jay, whoever so powerful and important because you're not writing this book without you talking about your DUI and the fact that you admit to you were in the wrong and all this stuff. And obviously there's stuff part of that where they tried saying you lied, which turned out was utter bullshit. Uh, but the fact you're able to humanize your actions, I think is what resonates people to be like, okay, this is a book I need to read or I understand because this person for all intents and purposes is telling the truth. Well, it, the biggest thing is, is it, that's what my problem with media today. They tell half a story. They show you the bad side and, and, and they twist it to make it look like it is, you know, to me, you can't tell a story without telling the whole thing. And believe me, man, I, I love me some me. I would love to tell you everything good about me, but man, I'm not, I'm not anywhere close to perfect. And to be honest with you, uh, a lot of my strengths come from the mistakes that I've made in my, not only my career, but in my life. You know, I, every time I make a mistake and finally admit to whatever that mistake was, I grow from it, you know, and, and I've seen a lot of people, you know, the army is, 
a huge proponent of, even if it's not your fault, own it. You know, I fucked up for a sergeant. You got me, you know, let me fix it. That's how you grow. But if you spend a lot of time making excuses or trying to rationalize uh, things, that's where we go wrong. And that I think is a huge problem with where we're at today. You know, we're, we're trying to fix the violent crime problem uh, and gun violence in the United States of America, which is a huge fucking problem. But we're going to go and the way to, to uh, solve the violent crime problem in the United States today is, according to some people, uh, let's stop these rogue cops from killing everybody. Man, if, if every police officer in the United States today never shot and killed anybody else ever, okay, that's one to five percent of the people that are murdered in this country. When do you ever tackle a problem looking at 5% of it? Let's go after the other 95% and, and really solve the problem. But we're not being honest about that. So you know, like I said, my next book, uh, which is called Ruffian, it's about a, a long-term investigation we did. Uh, invest, Like I said, it was an investigation as opposed to like Expo that was a patrol function. But uh, I talk about a lot of those things. We got to be honest about what our problems are so we can fix them. If we lie about what the problem is, we're not fixing the right thing, you know? Right. The f really cool thing about this book is the fact it's written like a person who's actually a cop. Obviously you were, but the lingo, whether it's the language, the swearing, it's all stuff that I remember hearing in the locker rooms after a shift or all this other stuff. And so it, it, it will be a two-part question. When it came to writing the book, Obviously, with your job, you do a lot of report writing, field notes, stuff like that. But to transcribe that type of writing into a book as seamlessly as you did, like what was the drafting process and the editing process to, when you finally submitted this book? Well, man, I, one, I appreciate that. Uh, you said seamlessly. I, I happen to disagree. Two, uh, the editing. I could have used an editor. You know, I was a cop, not a writer. You know, I think that's um, why that book is successful. It's because you yeah, are. And, well, and, and that's that's so true. And one of the biggest things, two things that I really wanted to accomplish when I when I wrote this. All right. The first thing was I wanted the and the, the advice was was do not write like you speak. I think that's <laughs> bullshit. I wrote exactly how I talk and I wrote down because I wanted you to sit down when you read the book, even though you and I have never met. You can talk to me for five minutes and know I wrote that book because it's the same thing, you know, and I wanted guys that I work with to feel like I'm sitting down with them telling these stories. So I felt like I accomplished that and very effective, especially for all the advice I got like, oh, don't don't write like you speak. I'm like, all right, whatever. But I went against that and it worked. Um, the other thing I wanted to do was take guys and girls who had never been in a police car and make them feel like they were there to know what a foot chase is like, to know what a traffic stop is like, to know what the conversation between cops and quote unquote bad guys are like, you know, the, the dialogue uh, was very, very important to me. And I wanted to make that as realistic as possible. And the thing is, I didn't have to make it up. I just recounted, you know, years and years of conversations. Uh, the other thing I wanted to do was take somebody who had been a police officer make them feel like they were back in it. And I wanted it to connect with them like, yep. Cause like you said at the beginning, 
I'm talking about Savannah, but it connects anywhere. If you've been in a patrol car in LA or Wisconsin or, or yeah. Idaho, it, it rings true because it's the same game. And that, that's what I wanted to accomplish. And uh, the biggest compliments that I've gotten on that book are, are exactly that. It kind of reminded me, obviously the book takes place over a course of time, but the movie Trading Day, you're with those two characters, Denzel, Ethan Hawke, for the whole day. It, this book reads like you're with you the whole day, even though it's over. It, it had that real sense of authenticity to the idea of this is really cool. Yeah, it, you know, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun uh, in memories. I'm hoping maybe my grandkids one day will know, you know, their fat old granddad was, uh, you know, was about something one time in his life, but it was a lot of fun. You know, I, I talk about a lot of serious stuff, but you know, it, it's exciting. It, you know, I had people saying, you should have a tour in Savannah and, and show people. I'm like, yeah, but you don't want to go into some of those neighborhoods I'm talking about, you know? For you, as someone who's a friend with Lou, uh, who just released a new book, it was just amazing. Jay Dobbins, books like Chasing Hell and all this stuff. When those books come out and you guys are friends, is there... Are you always kind of like, oh, hey, Luke, can you read my new book or vice versa? Like, are you kind of like, I wonder what my friend's going to think of me? Like, like that type of vibe there. I don't give a shit what they think. <laughs> but no, <laughs> uh, you know what? No, because it's, it's not really competitive that way. And, and it's funny to say that because you're talking about some really type A personalities, you know. Yes. And oh, I know yeah. Bird, uh, Jay Dobbins through Lou, um, you know. Lou and I worked very, very close in some cases, um, but I was working some long-term investigations out on the street while Lou was working storefronts, and, you know, we would bump in the middle of there, so uh, I send him some stuff here and there. Like I said, I'm, I'm in the process. My next one's coming out in May, um, but he didn't send me any of his uh, because the thing is, I don't want him to influence uh what i'm writing and i know he didn't want you know because you don't oh you shouldn't say that i don't want anybody telling me i shouldn't say that i'm gonna say what i think and what i feel and you know the the thing about that is you catch the blowback for it but it, it's not muted you know it, and i think a lot of the things that you're talking about that connect with you is is that authenticity and being genuine you know when, when i was working the street or when we were in meeting rooms talking about how we're going to do a case I would let it out there and say, Hey, this is what I'm going to do. And I'd get the blowback or the agreement. You know, that's how you succeed and fail in life. I think you, you put it out there, you put what you believe uh, and then you stand behind it. And that's, that's what we do. But I can tell you, uh, you know, the thing that impresses me uh, the most is, you know, Lou's book, it's called storefront staying and ATF uh, agents life undercover. You know, it's very Lou. It, it is very, oh, yeah. very, you know, Lou, Lou is a, you know, big, scary, imposing human being, if you don't know. Uh, but he's also highly, highly intelligent. He's one of the few people I know that can sit with the baddest of the bad guys and fit right into their conversation and then go to the, uh, you know, sit down with a federal judge and those people and you know, hold his own on that level too. So, you know, his, his range of things, which is what I think works so well in his book, because he's talking about some very street level stuff. Uh, and then he talks about it all the way up to the highest levels and, and he does it very well because that's who he is. 
this your story specifically the black sheep by cop seems like it's ripe for like a documentary or like a, a proper show on say netflix has there been discussion of that or are you able to talk about that because i think it's a there what actually happens in here you couldn't have enough show writers concoct something that really happened as well as this did oh no we we have a lot of things going on with that you know i, I work with a guy who's a former marine uh former boston pd uh, then he was an intel guy for the United Nations and would do uh, foreign missions. I met him through my brother, as a matter of fact, because my brother is a, uh, he works for the United Nations, but his name's Billy Smith. He's a very successful actor. You know, he's been in, uh, he's actually doing a, a documentary with Sean Penn in Ukraine right now, which is uh, oh, wow. a really oh, I saw bad that. time to be in Ukraine. <laughs> but, you know, Billy's a little badass. He, he really, you know, a tremendous actor. Uh, but highly, highly intelligent also. The guy sees the story. And ever since this book came out, he and I have been working. Uh, we've written some scripts for Feature Lake Film. We're looking at documentary stuff. But uh, getting funding for a pro-police uh, project in today's day and age uh, has been, it's proven to be a challenge. Uh, but, you know, we're still working at it, but it's Hollywood. It, it takes a little while, uh, but we'll get there. It's very interesting you say that because in a time of Hollywood rehashes old ideas and remakes and reboots, the fact that you're going to tell a story, a true story with all the shit in it and all the good stuff, and the fact they don't want to put that out there because you might show a cop in a good light. or But if this whole movie or your thing you're doing was all anti-cop, oh, who wants to be in it? We'll do all these people. It's that For me, that is the crux of this whole thing where you can't even tell a true story if it shows one ounce of pro law enforcement. No, and the, the thing that hurts about that is, is you got men and women out there doing this job honestly and correctly every day. Millions of police citizen encounters that end uh, in a positive light or end in a non-issue, you know, an arrest, whatever. Uh, but we don't focus on any of that. We don't give them the credit for keeping us safe and, and uh you know, taking care of our communities. All we do is we wait for that glitch. You know, uh, I pointed it out a bunch of times, you know, all of these cases, and I, and I hate to rehash them all, but, you know, you got Trayvon Martin, who that was to me where the whole thing is, oh my God, they're going after uh, black kids in America. And I was like, well, first of all, he wasn't killed by a police officer, but, you know, depending on who you ask, people don't know any of that. Uh, Michael Brown and the hands yep. up, don't shoot. You know, they pounded that hands up, don't shoot. They shot an unarmed guy, all this. Well, if you ever looked at the actual reports, you know, file Freedom of Information Act, read the report, look at it. You know that, you know, that was proven not to be the case at all. But we had athletes, you know, people that uh, are role models in our country standing up and saying, oh, hands up, don't shoot. Uh, well, I've never seen any of those athletes go back and say, oh, you know what? We were wrong about that. Sorry. Hey, you know, and once you squeeze the paste out of the toothpaste, you can't put it back in. So, you know, it erodes the trust between law enforcement and uh, our communities. And, and it's just sickening. But like you said, Netflix, Amazon, all that, they'll pick up all this negativity and they'll say. Police, but they won't show the other side, the very human side. And, and that I think, uh, is the strength of what I write. It's definitely the strength of what Lou wrote and, and Bird wrote and you know guys like Billy Queen wrote way back when. 
Right? Yep. It shows a very human side. And, and that's, I think, uh, when you talk about uses of force and, you know, cops being killed, I've heard people say, oh, well, that's what they signed up for. It's horseshit. Nobody signs up to get killed. Nobody signs up to get shot. And more importantly, nobody signs up to shoot and hurt other people. You know, like I said, I, I come from a, a combat background. I was in Sadr City in 2003, one of the most violent places in the world. And I saw violence on a scale that, you know, uh, sometimes it's difficult to sleep. But the level of violence in Savannah, Georgia in 2022 is not a lot of not a lot different to me. People get shot every other day in this city. And I was looking at the stats in Chicago. Uh, a person in Chicago gets shot every three hours and 36 minutes. That's every crazy. three hours and 36 minutes, somebody gets shot in the city of Chicago. That's insane to me. Uh, but you can't say any good, can't say good things about cops, but don't say bad things about the guys that are out there shooting people every three hours and 36 minutes. Cause you know, it's not their fault. There's mental health issues. It's poverty. It's all this, you know, let's not make excuses for the bad guys and quit yep. shitting on the good guys. No, it's uh, to your point with the celebrity, there was a Pittsburgh Steeler who came out in, in something. I think I can't think of the case, but it was the last couple of years where he basically came out and said, and he's a pro bowl. He's like, Hey, enough with the bullshit. I, I made a mistake thinking one thing that I actually saw the video. I read the actual whatever. And I apologize. He, it was a really cool way how he did it. And I just wish there were more people like that, that not, or just from the beginning where it's like, it's okay to be pro cop and not be vilified or not be lose your sponsorships or not. It's just so weird. Like I remember, and I get so passionate about it. Like with the police defund thing, my family is all very pro law enforcement. We have the thin blue line sticker on our car, very all pro military pro cop. And our thoughts were when it got really bad was like, man, do we take the puppet stick off so those will break the car or slash the tires? And it's like, you sit back and you go, you know what? If they slash my tire or break my window or whatever because I'm pro-cop, I can live with that. But the fact that it even came across my head, it's just, it just super scary. No, it's, it's kind of despicable. And here, here's the thing that bothers me the most. All right. So, you know, the, this book, the one we're talking about, you know, talked about very pro proactive uh policing and in a very positive light you know honest guys doing hard work doing the best making mistakes but doing it you know for the good of the community all right but we knew how to do it i learned from some old school you know just warriors i mean these guys taught me a lot guys like armando tamargo guys like uh ron pearson uh, Dalfini brother, all, all the guys that I mentioned, you know, and, and I took great pride in mentioning all the guys who influenced me and, and had positive effects uh, on my career. But those guys are gone. Okay. Guys like Lou Velozzi and I, we're gone. We've been run off from the game. Uh, the guys that were alongside me, uh, I joke about it. I say, you know, I left policing seven years ago and I'm seven years older. The guys that are still with the department today, they're like 11, 12 years older than they were seven years ago. You know, they've aged the stress from all of this shit has, has worn on them. So they're not teaching the younger guys. Okay. And the other thing is you get uh, city halls and, and governments involved in law enforcement and 
they're pushing those political agendas that are ooh, kinder, gentler. Well, you've lost that edge. So we, we talked earlier about, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies, which is absolutely necessary yes. to succeed in a community. But it, it's just like, you know, uh, parenting. It's a lot like parenting. When your mom comes in, she says, oh, honey, you know, please, you know, don't bring food into your bedroom. Okay. And your mom asks you nicely. Yes, nicely. But you keep doing it. Well, then dad comes in and says, hey, look, you little fucker, get the food out, <laughs> clean your shirt. And, but that's how society works. Yes. It, it's yes. the same thing. I spent so much time in these neighborhoods, uh, you know, and I have a lot of affection for a lot of people still in those neighborhoods. But I would go, I'd always have a bag of bubble gum on my, uh, on my passenger seat. And the kids knew that they'd run up to me. I'd give them gum. I'd throw a football around, whatever I had the time to do to interact positively, I would, but the dope boys knew I was coming too. you know, I would be just as quick to hand them a piece of bubble gum and be like, Hey man, do me a favor. Here's some gum, but do me a favor, put your hands up on the wall and make sure, you know, I just want to make sure everything's good here. And they knew, you know, cause I came at them straight, you know, and there's a certain level of respect uh, you know, in that book a lot, I talk about the game. It's a constant, uh, it's a constant balancing act. You know, you juggle, all right, do I go at them now or do I, but the one thing about the whole thing is you got to keep it real the whole time. So it, you can be very successful if you're being honest with it. And I think in America today, we're just not being honest uh, with a, a hammer. Uh, the guys who are left and there are, you know, old school cops that are still left, but they don't want the headache, man. They're, they got to worry about their pensions. Um, I was talking to an old lieutenant of mine the other day. The only thing I had to worry about when I started policing was getting shot and killed. You know, that was the only thing I had to worry about. That was my worst fear when I went to work. Now you have to worry about getting indicted and put in prison for doing your job, even if you're not wrong. You know, it, it's, uh, or if you make a mistake, that's the worst thing. Can you imagine being in a, in a job where if you make a mistake, you go to prison? I, I was looking at the numbers, you know, uh, medical malpractice annually, there's 251,000 deaths as a result of medical malpractice in this country. Every year it averages out to be, are we calling to defund doctors? Are we going to, are we saying, Hey, stop doing, uh, you know, let's not do any more medical procedures because people die. It's a shitty world. You know, we got to balance it out, but we have to put the blame or not even blame blames. A, we have to put right. the emphasis on uh, what's really going on so we can fix it. To circle back and before we close this out, you mentioned your son obviously uh, got into the army and all that stuff, which is amazing. When the time comes for him to get out there and he's like, man, I, man, I'm thinking about law enforcement. What will your sit down talk? I mean, obviously he's familiar with your life and career and the book and everything, but will there be an honest discussion with him saying, Hey, is this really what you want? Or were you going to let him, Hey, if you want to do it, I support you hundred percent. I'm going to, I'm going to support that kid. Uh, no matter what he does, like I said, awesome. he is a United States army ranger, which to me is, you know, way to go, awesome. you know, uh, yep. But he's he's the type of guy he's gonna he's already set out to do what he's gonna do. So there's nothing I can guide, but I'm not gonna stop him. I mean, shit, he's gonna do what he's gonna do. Thankfully, uh, he's kind of geared towards the medical profession and the art. But we already had those conversations. You yeah, know? I, he's seen the ups and downs of of what I went through. He's seen the ups and downs of what my 
buddies have gone through, you know, I, I've let them read those. I'll let them read. Uh, I've given them, you know, birds books. I've given them lose books. I get, you know, we've had all those conversations, but I don't discourage anybody from doing, it. I hope to God he finds, you know, he stays with the medical field and does that kind of stuff. But, you know, no matter what he does, I'll always have his back. The idea of uh, this came to me, but the, when, when, you, when I was in high school or even college, you, you read these books, whether it's To Kill a Mockingbird or Things Fall Apart or Catcher in the Rye, like different stuff. I'm always curious, and I, I understand why there's not like autobiographies and stuff, unless it's like Lincoln or something in school. But if you read a book like yours or uh, Chasing Hell or A Storefront Staying by Lou, like the idea of the real practical look at law enforcement and the idea of human, the human aspect of right and wrong and all this stuff. Like why aren't there schools out there that maybe don't force these type of books, but when I got the summer reading list, it was always like fantasy shit. And like, I love dragons and monsters, but where are the books I could have read that could have told me before I got law enforcement or to understand firefighters or this type of thing where these type of jobs and roles are so vital to the uh, environment we live in today. How could we aren't tell, having our kids have the option to read these books or at least putting that option out there? Well, right now, because the cops, the cops are the bad guys. You don't want your kids picking up the, that stuff. We don't want them to be like guys like me and, and that. And, and believe me, there's nothing special about uh, my story is just one of millions of stories. You right. know, it, it's, uh, bird stories is one of millions too, but you know, they're each person, everybody's got a story. Everybody has one. And, and the thing is, uh, that's why we're spending a lot of time now putting these things out. You know, like I said, I, I wrote the first one five years ago, this one, uh, coming out in May. It, it's because I feel those stories are important, uh, you know, to see, criminal justice reform, let's reform the police and that kind of stuff. Well, why don't we start in the DA's office? Why don't we start where, you know, because if you don't know, you know, there's no way you could know. Because if you read a newspaper or watch TV, they don't tell you the real story. You know, it, it's so fragmented. Um, you only get bits and pieces, but you're not getting the truth. What we don't do in society anymore, unfortunately, is we don't look any farther than the headlines. You know, headlines pop up on social media. We see it and we formulate our opinion based on that. Nobody even reads articles barely anymore. They just go off of, I read the headline. I got, you know, this is the way I feel about it. So this is what I'm going to say about it. You know, my dad was a huge proponent of, you can have your opinion. Doesn't mean I have to fucking listen to it. You know, yeah. it, you're entitled to your opinion. That's great. But it doesn't mean there's any basis. We have forgotten to go behind that and develop a basis of knowledge on what we're speaking of. You know, social media has made us uh, very, very brave. Uh, when I was a kid in high school, if I wanted to say something, you know, provocative or incendiary, I would have to get in front of a group of people. I would have to recognize who was there. And I would have to choose my words very carefully because if I said the wrong thing, I might get busted in the mouth, you know? Yep. And, and the thing is deservedly so, but, uh, disagreement was encouraged, you know, and, and that's how I grew. And that's how I learned. I don't think we do that anymore. Because now all you have to do is get on social media and you can be, you know, anonymous.com. And I can shit on anything and anybody. And it somehow has the same amount of weight. It's like listening to people talk about their medical opinions on the pandemic. 
You're not a doctor. You don't fucking know. Uh, don't come at me and tell me how I should have handled a call uh, in law enforcement if you've never been to academy or never been on the street. I don't want to hear it. When I see a doctor doing surgery, I'm not telling him what to do. You know why? Because I have no basis of knowledge. Nothing to base what I'm thinking of. But now people just throw out, oh, you should have bypassed the the uh, you know carotid artery. That's what I would have done. Yeah, great. Because you learned that in a video game? Sure. You know. Experience anatomy. Right. The Before I let you go, obviously, you get this book, uh, Black Sheep, White Cop, on Amazon. If people, can you start to pre-order your new book? If people want to reach out to you, I know you have your LinkedIn page, you got Facebook, but any other means people can reach out to you for questions, comments, and if they want to pre-order your book. Well, I, I encourage everybody to check out End to Watch with Bootsy and Sal. Uh, it's on Spotify. You know, a lot, a lot of great guests, a lot of great things we do. Uh, my social media, I'm, I'm the easiest person on earth to get in touch with. Uh, just hit me up. I, I'm not going to have any pre-orders, but I will tell you, it's May 22nd, so I'll release it uh, on May 22nd on Amazon. Um, it'll be all over my social media. Um, uh, the 1108 store, you can go. So the1108store.com. Uh, you can get my book. You can get End of Watch with Bootsy and South t-shirts. You know, I, shameless uh, marketing. <laughs> uh, How but, was that podcast is so fascinating because it's two salt of the earth people. Uh, but how, how fun is that for you to have, especially when you guys have other guests on there, whether it's Jay or people like Steve Murphy and these type of people on that show, like, is it, you get to hear their stories. And it's, for me, it just seems so organic and you guys, the best part is you look like you're having fun. You sound like you're having fun. It's, I mean, it's gotta be a blast for you guys doing that. Oh, we, we have so much fun. And the thing is, if you look at our guest list, man, I mean, oh, it's that's what's that's what's made it for me. You know, guys like uh, former ICE agent Victor Avila, when he tells his story yes. uh, in, in the murder of Jaime Zapata and what he's gone through. Holy shit. Good God. But then, you know, you have David Clark that comes on. You got yep. uh, Steve Murphy and Javier Pena, the guys that Narcos is based on. We've had. Eddie Gallagher, who's the Navy SEAL that was accused of murder, which was complete horseshit. Uh, Dale Dye, who, uh, Captain Dale Dye, I, I call yep. him Dale Dye like we're pals. Uh, Captain Dale Dye, who has done the consulting for every military movie since Platoon. Uh, you know, being able for a shithead like me to be able to talk to guys like that and, and try and relate, uh, it, it's so much fun. But the thing is, it's like you and I are, are doing, you know, there's, you don't pull any punches. You just let it be what it is. And Lou and I have been friends uh, for a good long time, you know, so he and I doing it together is, you know, it's a lot of fun for both of us, but there's so much honesty when it comes to, you know, when we talk to Mel Chancy, who, you know, was the president oh, yeah. of Hell's Angel uh, and then Chris Bayless, who is, the best undercover agent. I don't care what agency you're talking about. Chris Bayless is a genius. Uh, Chris Bayless is actually writing the foreword for my next book. Um, and it, it's one of those things where being able to chop it up with those guys, I learn so much. I remember so much. I uh, connect with those guys on such a level that it's it just, you know, you can't help but have fun. 
Yeah, it's it's great. I highly recommend that and uh, people check that out. So, Kevin, this has been amazing. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for the book. Uh, good luck on the launch coming up. And we'll have to have you on here again so you can join the uh, two-timer club with Jay and uh, Lou. Yeah, those two are definitely two-timers, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for everything today. I appreciate you. Thank you very much for having thank me. You. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the chop fit. Over the course of the past year, the ChopFit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourself as well. If you use this code, SPEARCHOP10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SPEARCHOP10 for $10 off your ChopFit order. It'll change your life. Thank you. Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance, and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.